It's Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. You're with us on the Ideas Network. Over 40 million Americans suffer from migraines. About three-fourths of those are women. Migraines aren't just a headache. They're a neurological disorder with other symptoms like nausea and vomiting, light, sound, and smell sensitivity, in addition to the head pain that can last anywhere from several hours to several days. In recent years, we've made major advances in migraine treatment, including new drugs and wearable devices. In spite of those advances, though, the majority of people who have migraines never seek proper diagnosis and treatment. We're talking about the gap between migraine research and people's lived experience, and we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Do you suffer from migraines? Have you been able to get that official diagnosis and treatment? Have you found a treatment that works for you, that makes you feel better? How have migraines affected your daily life? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Her recent piece is titled, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? Marina, welcome back to Central Time. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me. Well, as I just mentioned, a migraine is a lot more than a run-of-the-mill headache, and that's not a surprise to anyone who's had this, including yourself. Um, Can you start us off by just talking about some of the big ways these can differ from normal headaches and just how bad it can get? That's right. Yeah. Migraines are way more complicated than just a simple headache. Um, Definitely there is headache pain, often often throbbing pain in one side of the head, but then you also have symptoms like nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light and noise. Um, And as you said earlier, these symptoms can last for hours or days. And then there is something called the migraine hangover, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, You know, after the worst symptoms have passed, um, some migraine sufferers can feel fatigue, they have trouble concentrating, and they experience dizziness. So, um, The experts that I talked to for this story, they all referred to migraines as attacks. And I'd never thought to call them that way, even call them by that, even though I've had migraines for years. Um, But what an accurate term to describe the experience of a migraine. And it sounds like based on surveys and research um, that it can have a real impact on people's lives personally, professionally. What did you find out? Yeah, migraine is a condition that really affects every part of your daily life, right? You know, if you have a migraine and you have to go pick up your kid at school, that's going to be harder than on the non-migraine day, right? So um, people who have migraines, you know, they'll cancel plans and feel guilty about it. They'll struggle to parent. They'll call in sick to work if they can. And if they can't, then they'll move through the workday like zombies. Um, And research has shown that um, migraine is, uh, you know, many, one of the reasons that people are just kind of coasting at work sometimes and not really fully there, it's because they're working through something like migraine. Um, So it really can affect every aspect of life and, you know, take a couple days away from you if you have a per month, if you have something called episodic migraine. Um, But if you have chronic migraine, you're looking at, you know, 15 or more days of the month where you are really struggling through these symptoms. And as it stands right now, do we know what exactly is happening in the brain and in the body during a migraine? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I remember um, when I was getting into the final edits of this piece, I was running the language of, you know, some of the really nitty gritty stuff about how this works past my sources, the researchers. And they said, yeah, that's close enough. 
that's as best as we can get, right? Because the exact cause of migraine is still a mystery, but scientists and researchers are getting closer to understanding the pathways um, that are involved. So uh, years ago, migraines were thought to be a vascular disorder, that there was something happening in the blood flow in the brain and changes in that blood flow that would then contribute to migraine symptoms. Um, definitely that plays a role in an attack, but now scientists understand that the chaos actually comes from within the nervous system. And so um, the best understanding right now is that there is this nerve that provides sensation to the face and something happens to stimulate that nerve, which then triggers cells in the brain to release neurotransmitters that then produce headache pain. How the other symptoms of migraines arise, that's a bit more mysterious, um, but it is definitely understood today as a nervous system issue, as a neurological disorder. And from reading your piece, I learned that maybe at first migraine was seen as a, a distinct category of disorder that needed its own research. And then it kind of got lumped in with a lot of other things and a, a stigma arose around it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Yeah, um, there has been some research done that, you know, um, in medieval times, for example, in classical times, um, migraines, as you said, were considered to be a serious disorder that required, you know, serious focus and, and study. And then something happened in the 18th century when medical professionals decided to lump migraines together in with other nervous disorders, such as hysteria, um, which, of course, was, you know... A, a pseudo scientific disease that was um, diagnosed in women who were seen as, you know, over emotional, overexcited, oversensitive. And so there, there was an association established between migraines and women. And that association really persisted. You know, some of the experts I talked to for the story said that, you know, one in particular, when he began his training, his medical training in the 1960s, nobody really talked about migraines. And if they did, physicians still believed that migraines were the disorder of neurotic women. And we uh, are talking with Marina Corrin right now, staff writer at The Atlantic, about migraine, migraine research and treatment. We've made a lot of strides, but not everyone is getting connected with that treatment. And Marina, one of the things uh, that really surprised me is that out of the people that report having regular migraine, the majority of them have not sought official treatment or diagnosis. Why do you think that is? Yeah, and I've actually, I've had to reckon with my uh, reasoning for not seeking out enough medical treatment for this this condition. Again, which I didn't really think of as a condition um, personally. I've had migraines now for about a decade. And before that, as a teenager um, and as a child, I had childhood epilepsy. And for whatever reason, that vanished around my late teens. And I never quite got an explanation for why I had had seizures. But then the migraines started. And I kind of accepted those as a just a fact of my slightly broken brain, right? A fact of my existence. And the researchers I spoke with for the story say that a lot of people feel the same way about their migraines. They they normalize them. They see them as something that they can handle on their own and maybe doesn't require um, real medical intervention. Um, of course, some people who don't seek care are just not able to because um, they may not be able to afford migraine drugs. Uh, they may not have health insurance that can cover their treatment. And there are, you know, other more systemic issues. For example, there are just not that many migraine experts 
out there, uh, migraine doctors that really know a lot about the latest treatment, the latest remedies, and the physicians that are out there, they are quite concentrated in major metropolitan areas in the United States. So you're leaving you know, huge parts of rural America um, without doctors that really understand this condition and what can be done for it. Let's go to our phones right now at 800-642-1234. We have Lisa with us in Madison. Hi, Lisa. Hi, I'm just wondering if there's any other treatment for pregnant women in the early 2000s um, both of my pregnancies, I'd had migraines before, and I got them during the pregnancies. I would lay around for days. Some of them were severe enough, though, that I was throwing up, and then I'd have to go into the ER, and because I was getting dehydrated, and uh, they would have to give me a shot of morphine. Um, so I wonder if there's anything else out there now for pregnant women. Lisa, thanks for calling in and sharing your experience. Uh, Marina, is there anything uh, that you ran into in your reporting regarding uh, complications during pregnancies? Yeah, I mean, well, first off, Lisa, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I am with you. One thing I've learned through doing the story is that there's a lot of us out there and solidarity is key when you're a migraine sufferer. Um, I mean, this is a great question and I wish I had a better answer. I didn't um, didn't dive too deeply into um, potential treatments for people who are pregnant. But, um, you know, one thing that is clear migraine is a type of threshold disorder and some people just have a lower threshold for um, getting these attacks and what prompts them are triggers and unfortunately um, one trigger for migraine is simply having a uterus right (laughs) being um, a person who ovulates who um, can give birth who menstruates and so I think there's probably a lot more that can be done for pregnant women and pregnant people Um, I would love to to do a bit more digging and get back to Lisa on that Lisa, thanks for the call. And Marina, Lisa also mentioned uh, to our producer that uh, she was told not to use triptans during pregnancy to treat migraines. Can you talk a little bit about those drugs and how um, what they can do? Yeah, so triptans are a class of drugs that were introduced in the 1990s, and they were uh, much more effective and faster at easing migraine pain than earlier drugs had been. Um, But triptans don't necessarily work for everyone. And that's another tricky aspect of migraine treatment. Um, The experts I spoke with said that one of the things that really, one of the things that really frustrates them is that one type of medication, one type of treatment plan might work beautifully for one patient, but not at all for another. And that is a huge mystery for doctors. They don't know exactly why that happens. So I'm not sure what it is about triptans that maybe, um, it's best if people who are pregnant are not using them, but it is true that, you know, that there is a gap in what physicians call precision, precision medicine here. Um, there are a lot of mysteries about which drugs will work, which won't. And if they do work, sometimes um, the effects fade away and drugs will just simply stop working for migraine sufferers and doctors don't know why. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. We're talking with her about her recent article, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you suffer from migraines, how has it affected your life, your work? Have you found a treatment that works? Let us know at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now, we're picking up the talk with Atlantic staff writer Marina Corin. She recently wrote about migraine research and treatment. 
We know a lot more than we used to, but a lot of people aren't getting connected to those treatments. And Marina, before we go back to our callers, I want to um, talk about those new treatments. Uh, you say the last five years, have, we've made huge strides. You compared it to the 1990s all over again in your article. What are some of the new uh, treatments out there that we're seeing? That's right. So the reason that things are kind of great in the um, research field right now is because um, at long last, you know, after decades and centuries of suffering, because people have had migraines for as long as we've had brains, um, researchers were able to use advanced um, brain scan and imaging techniques to really understand what was happening in the brain. Of course, they can't really say why, but at least they can see which parts of the brain um, light up during a migraine attack. And so they were able to um, use that information to inform new medications that targeted the regulation of neurotransmitters, specifically one called CGRP, which is known to spike during attacks. And so these new medications have been shown to be effective at um, cutting migraine days, uh, easing symptoms, whether it's in the moment or, or beforehand. One of the more exciting treatments is uh, an infusion, an injection type of medication that you can take, and it is supposed to um, be preventative, right? And and reduce the number of migraine days you have um, per month. So in the beginning, um, people would usually, in the midst of an attack, take something, take a triptan, for example, and hope that it kicked in. Um, whereas now there's a lot more preventative uh, treatments that really target the um, neurotransmitters that people are now really understanding to be involved in migraine attacks. We have full phone lines, so let's go uh, to our callers right now. We have uh, Todd with us in the UP of Michigan. Hey, Todd. Hello. What do you want to bring up? Uh, well, that one important treatment for uh, chronic headaches and uh, whatever is uh, to stop taking proton pump inhibitors like Prilosec and Nexium, which cause damage to every organ system, uh, and interfere with myelinization of uh, the nerve cells, the coatings on the nerve cells. Lower stomach acid means uh, lower uh, vitamin B12, which means uh, you're not, uh, which interferes, which are important for myelinization. So I base this on 45 years of uh, proton pump inhibitors and chronic migraines and Todd, thanks for the call. Uh, Marina, I'm sure every medication is going to affect people differently, but as you're determining a, a treatment for migraine, I'd imagine that taking into account other medications you are prescribed for might be difficult. That's right. Yeah. I think, uh, um, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I imagine there's quite a bit of, um, you, you look into drug interactions and what drugs might be um making things worse for you or better. Um, and, you know, one thing that I kept coming across in my research for this story is just how, um, for example, I take Excedrin for my migraines and have for a long time. And um, lots of people, I think, also take a lot of over-the-counter medications to treat their migraine symptoms. And it turns out that if you overuse them and um, they might actually backfire and make your migraine headache pain even worse. And after hearing that, it seemed kind of obvious. But before that, I was always reaching for the Excedrin, thinking it would be making me better and not realizing that it could actually be prolonging my suffering. So um, there's a lot of, of discussion to be had with your physician if you're able to see one about what is actually working and what's not. 
Uh, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Ruth in Ladysmith. Hi, Ruth. Hi. I was wondering, have you found any correlation with artificial sweeteners? For me, aspartame triggers headaches, and I was told aspartame causes a lot of allergic reactions, and one of the first signs of allergic reaction is a headache. Gotcha, Ruth. Thank you for the call. Um, Marina, I don't think you wrote about artificial sweeteners, but sugar and chocolate did show up in uh, in your writing. Yeah, this is a great question, right? Um, so much about managing migraines is, you know, the advice that people with migraine get is to lead a healthier lifestyle. And they're usually, if you just Google, like, how do I reduce migraines? You'll get a list from a bunch of reputable institutions telling you all the things you have to avoid. Um, and sweeteners, artificial sugars, chocolate, all of that shows up. Um, what's interesting, though, is some of the researchers I talked to said that, you know, they are still trying to understand exactly how triggers work and whether triggers that we believe to be triggers of migraine are actually triggers. Um, for example, one of the researchers I spoke with said that MSG, the common food additive, um, probably doesn't actually induce migraines, even though it shows up on a lot of these lists as a food trigger. Um, and there is some research showing that sometimes before the true awful symptoms of a migraine have come on, you are already in that migraine phase. You know, the gears are already moving forward in your in your brain and you might reach for a bar of chocolate and think, oh no, this is going to give me a migraine. And when it does, you blame the bar of chocolate. But actually a symptom of um, a pre-migraine phase is food cravings. So researchers are currently exploring whether the fact that, you know, you're craving chocolate and eating chocolate with those artificial sweeteners in it, um, they're trying to find, find out whether the migraine actually made you do that and not, you know, maybe that wasn't the trigger and something else was that's another tricky part about having a migraines. It's never just one trigger that brings one on. It could be, you know, poor night's sleep from the night before or from two nights before. So it's all kind of messy. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Ruth. Let's go uh, to Margaret next in Whitewater. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Um, yes, I have a, a solution that's helped me with every single migraine I've ever had. And I started getting migraines at age 14. Um, around my um, menstrual period. So um, anyway, I went to a doctor in Boston um, when I was in my 20s, and he said, and I also got the auras and, you know, flashing lights and things like that. He said, when you get the aura, change your blood flow by doing any kind of intense exercise. Just has to be really intense for about 20 minutes, don't um walking won't work but running swimming so i tried it and once with a swimming pool jumped in right when the aura came and within 20 minutes it was completely gone no side effects um i've done running now when it's bad weather in wisconsin i do a stationary bike and once i break a sweat and i guess the blood flow has changed it completely goes away so um that doctor is the only doctor who's ever told me that, but it's been like a, a miracle for me. So wow. I just wanted to, to say that, yeah. Wow, Margaret, thanks for uh, for sharing, and I'm glad you found something that works for you. Uh, Marina, it seems like there are a lot of different solutions out there. Some work for some, maybe not for others. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's such an interesting story, and I wonder, right, if if 
her symptoms went away because it did have something to do with, um, you know, blood flow in vessels in the brain. As I said before, uh, migraine is not strictly a vascular disorder, but um, the way that the blood moves around is it does contribute to headache pain. And so some of the medications that are out there, um, including triptans, they work to um, constrict blood vessels that are inflamed to try to ease symptoms that way. So maybe um, extreme exercise also has some type of similar effect. Um, but what I love most about all these listener calls is everyone sharing their very individual stories for what works for them. And that's really what I found in my research for this story is that um, people try all kinds of different things. Um, I know of one, a friend of mine who shotguns a Coke, a can of Coke when she feels a migraine coming on and that works for her to chug that soda. Um, and yeah, it, it, migraine treatment, you know, whether you are popping Excedrin or shotgunning Cokes or you are um, taking triptans or some of these CGRP infusions, there are lots of different options. I would recommend that everyone go see a specialist if they can, if they're really struggling with this. But if something is working for you, it's working for you. And as long as it's not harmful in other ways, stick with it because migraines are miserable. And Marina, I think we'll have to leave it there. There's a lot left to talk about, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and joining us today. Of course, anytime. I'm wishing all your listeners uh, many migraine-free days. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She talked with us about her latest article, It's the Best Time in History to Have a Migraine, So Why Doesn't It Feel That Way? Looking at strides we've made in migraine research and treatment, not all of those treatments have made it down to the majority of migraine sufferers, though. A reminder that if you want to listen back to this conversation, share it with a friend, or find any of our past shows, you can search the Ideas Network program archives at WPR.org. You can also stream both of our networks live there or on the WPR app and stay current with the latest coverage from our news department. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in for Rob Ferrett today. Now it's this week's edition of Food Friday, and we're not going to overthink things. It's fall, and that means apples are ready to use in the kitchen. We're going to talk about expanding the varieties of apples we use, not judging one by its cover, and getting creative in how we cook them. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What's your favorite way to use apples in the kitchen? Your best recipe for baking with apples? Uh, What's the most creative way that you've integrated apples into a recipe? And have you tried a new variety lately? What'd you think? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Laurel Burleson is the owner of Ugly Apple Cafe in Madison, and she's with me here in the studio. Laurel, welcome to Central Time. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, before we dive into the, the cooking and the baking, I just want to find out a little bit more about um, your business, Ugly Apple. Um, can you tell us how it started and where the ugly aspect came from? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a chef by profession. I'm uh, been at it now close to 20 years. Uh, I started when I was in high school. I loved it. Went to school in the UP, uh, Northern Michigan University, to get a degree in hospitality management. Mm-hmm. Um, always with the goal of being a chef and eventually owning my own business. And uh, what that business would look like changed a lot over the years. But as I worked in some larger, um, more corporate environments, like a a major convention hotel and things like that, food waste really started bothering me, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's like a certain amount that restaurants can try to do with it. Um, but it was just something that's kind of an ongoing problem. And, And the more I kind of dug into it personally, I realized I wanted to focus on it as part of my business and that especially food from farmers, um, that is locally grown and perfectly good, but might be blend blemished or scratch and dent, that sort of thing, like should not go to waste. And so that's why I decided to call my business, the ugly apple when I opened it, um, going on seven years ago now mm-hmm. as a food cart, um, focusing on the, the foods that would go to waste, um, but that don't deserve to. Yeah, I think I saw you talking somewhere about beets in a fine dining restaurant that yeah. need to be cut into cubes, but that means you're losing like 30% of the beet. Exactly, exactly. And it's like, oh, you want like a perfect beet on this beautiful dish that's supposed to be art. And I understand that. But then it's like, well, yeah, once in a while, sure. But like what happens to the rest of that beet? <laughs> yeah. Well, when it comes to apples, uh, there I don't think there's one conventionally attractive apple because there's so many different types. Um we probably see about a dozen in the grocery store, but could you just tell us about like how much we're missing out on in the world of apples? Yeah, well, we're really lucky here in Wisconsin that there are tons of orchards, mm-hmm. and um, you know some of the orchards I work with grow like over 120 varieties of apples, like wow. in, insane. And some of that has to do with the way. And again, I'm not an orchardist. Um, they can really go into a lot of detail if you're interested, but um, apples don't seed the same variety so they have to kind of splice to to make the same type of apple grow on a tree so i feel like there's a lot of different kind of like varieties that that are possible um and it's it's really amazing and starting a lot earlier than you'd think too like some apples ripen like the first ones like the end of july beginning of august oh it's pretty long season Um, isn't it yeah and then some can winter over you know the the later varieties once it gets cold, they're still good, and then they can winter over kind of into the spring. Wow. And if, you know, held in the right environment, like in a, in a refrigerator. Um, so it's pretty amazing, like, what's possible. Um, and everything from, like, very tart, very juicy to, I mean, super sweet and all sorts of different textures uh, for different either baking or making sauce or making soup and kind of anything you can think of. And I understand you have a, a story about learning about the golden russet apple in particular. Yeah. Um, so this was like the first year that I opened. Um, and I was working with a, an apple orchard. And it was it was maybe like February or March. So like wintered over apples from, from that fall. And I had been going pretty small scale, just getting like 10 or 15 pounds at a time. And the um, it was uh, Appleberry Farm on the kind of the western side of Madison. Um, and I was asking farmer David, like, uh, Hey, which ones, which ones are good for sauce? He would kind of let me choose like of what he had stored. And he was like, Oh, golden russets. 
And I had passed them over the last couple weeks because they were brownish and they looked like they were kind of soft and they were just not the ones that I was choosing, but I was going to trust him. I wasn't going to argue with him. So I was like, okay, I'll take 10 pounds of the golden russets. And they were not mealy, not squishy, like uh, amazingly, like a little bit tart and a little bit sweet, but also just like had this bright juiciness I, they they were they became like instantly my favorite apple wow and it's like a perfect kind of lesson because these are like brown like russet the word russet is like russet potato like russeted is kind of like a texture and a color um so like not shiny not pretty these are like the ugliest apples and i like kicked myself a little bit because i called my business the ugly apple and that i was passing <laughs> up the ugliest apples that ended up being the best, like the most delicious. I've seen those apples too, and I have passed them over because they're not that attractive. And I guess that goes to show, talk to the person growing them. Yeah, definitely. Trust your farmer. And I mean, that's kind of across the board. You know, there's, again, in Wisconsin, we're lucky to have a lot of farmer's markets. And if you can have a conversation with the person growing your food, um, you can find some real gems of things that you might not be your favorite, but give them a shot. And, you know, this year at the cafe, too, we got some amazing green beans. And you wouldn't think there'd be that much different in green beans. But these were super sweet, delicious, not starchy green beans. And I was like, whoa, that's – but right from the farmer, we got we, – we're really lucky to have that. Yeah. And uh, we are talking right now with Laurel Burleson, owner of the Ugly Apple Cafe in Madison. We're talking apples on this edition of Food Friday, all types of apples. And uh, Laurel, you gave us a couple of recipes. These are up at uh, the WPR.org slash Food Friday webpage. One of these, I love butternut squash soup. This is a butternut squash with apple soup. Can you tell us about how this one comes together? Yeah. So one thing I really like about winter squash, um, so, you know, the butternuts, acorns, pumpkins, even there's a ton of, let's talk about varieties of things. There's a ton of different winter squash varieties, too. Um, but I like butternut because it's easy to get to at, you know, grocery store or farmer's market. And it can really go a lot of different directions. And so I think a lot of times squash soup uh, kind of leans towards pie. It's mm. very like spiced cinnamon, nutmeg. Um, but I like this one because the apple and onion makes it kind of bright and savory and fresh. And so between the onion, garlic, and sage, and uh, brightness of the, uh, you use a tart apple. Okay. You can use a sweeter apple too if you want it to lean more into that like squash sweetness. Mm -hmm. But this one's more like sweet, savory, um, a little bit tart, and it comes together really easily. If, especially if you have like an immersion blender, you can just kind of not worry about chopping everything super fine, as long as it's all about the same size. You cook it till it's soft, blend it all up, adjust the seasoning, and you're done. Yeah, and how do the apples get incorporated into there? Um, they go in with the squash. So I for okay. for that recipe, I peeled them, but also it's one of those where like eh, you don't have to. If you like a little texture, you can you can leave the skin on. Um, and again, some varieties, if you leave the skin on, if they're a, a dark enough red apple, like I'm thinking like an Ida red, which is like a later season apple, and a sweeter apple, um, they turn pink when you sauce them, and so it kind of like deepens the color a little bit of the soup too. Um, but yeah, just core them, dice them up, toss them into the squash. Delicious. Down. Yeah. yeah. We've got that recipe up at WPR.org slash food Friday. Um, let's go to the phones. We've got a caller with us right now. Christina is with us in Glenwood. Hi, Christina. 
Hi there. Thank you. I am all for ugly apples. And I'd like to make apple cider, but I don't have a press. Do you have any ideas? Is this possible? Oh, Christina, good question. That um, is a good question. Um, I have never tried to make cider without a press. Um, yeah, I'm that's, not. That's a good question. Uh, Christina, do you um, tend to like like a sweeter cider or something more tart? Well, what I like to do is blend a variety of organic apples. It doesn't matter. And that would include even crab apples. Just put it all together and see what you end up with. Wow. Yeah. Very cool, Christina. Um, I think great. there's a lesson in there in terms of blending different varieties of apples. Do you do that, uh, Laurel, in your cooking at all? Yeah, a lot. Actually, I, I also make fruit leather. Um, oh, nice. And so for that, I'll, I'll kind of mill a bunch of different types of apples together um, to kind of give a broader variety of flavor mm-hmm. yeah and i've um, asked folks at the farmer's market too before about like oh what goes in a pie they're like throw it all in there just you know do do several different types of, of varieties of apples that seems to work well yeah yeah but i my my instinct is that i think you need a press to really get cider like you can juice apples like with a juicer mm-hmm. but that would be a different thing i think i think you would need a press but i don't i'm not an expert in cider making. Gotcha. Uh, Christina, thanks for the call. Uh, Laurel, you mentioned that fruit leather. Um, How does one make that? That sounds really good. Yeah. So um, I started just at home too when I wanted to, basically I was getting more apples than I could use in just baked goods. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for a different product. And so I just got a little home dehydrator actually from the thrift store and started playing around with it. So basically just uh, breaking down apples, you can do them on the stove, uh, just kind of like how you would make applesauce, but not adding any sugar and um, and doing it that way. Or like n- now I have a food mill, which you can also buy for kind of breaking down tomatoes. So if people who process a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables at home might have like a little t- kind of tabletop food mill and um, just cook the apples until they're totally soft through and then pass them through that until you get a sauce, like a pretty thick sauce and kind of spread it um, depending on your dehydrator. Sometimes there's special sheets for them, um, but like not too thick, maybe, gosh, I'm trying to think. I do it by weight in my pan, so I'm trying to think how thick it actually is. Maybe a quarter inch, okay. but then that's also something you can experiment with and experiment with different adding chia seeds or flax seeds or different fruits blended in. Like I do six different varieties. Um so it's pretty easy to experiment with at home and find something that's unique that preserves a lot of apples for a really long time and that's sugar-free or no sugar added at least um, and a great snack. And yeah. Yeah. It's Food Friday and we're talking with Laurel Burleson uh, in the studio, owner of the Ugly Apple Cafe in Madison. And we're talking about using apples in the kitchen or on the grill or over the fire pit or any way you might want you can call in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have for our guest? Are you having any apple-related recipes going in the kitchen, maybe right now? What's your favorite recipe that you've made that you snuck apples into? And what is your favorite variety of apple this time of year? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation in just a minute here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now, we're picking up our Food Friday talk with Laurel Burleson, 
owner of Madison's Ugly Apple Cafe. We're talking about cooking or baking with apples, all types. You can join in at 800-642-1234. We want to hear your favorite apple recipes, your favorite varieties. That's 800-642-1234. Before the break, Laurel, I mentioned uh, the possibility of grilling apples. Um, Is this something you've tried out? Yeah, actually, um, in some different kind of recipes in the past here and there. How does it work? Um, You need an apple that's pretty firm, Mm -hmm. so um, not like a Macintosh, something like a baking apple, um, or some sweeter ones, too. Um, I don't, again, I'm trying to think of like... Like a Zestar would be good, maybe, mm. or like those Ida Reds that I mentioned, or uh, again, like a baking apple, like a like a Granny Smith, or um, the ones that I love to bake with are it's like a weird like French heirloom apple. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, um, and you get the grill really, really hot, and then just brush a little oil on the apples and give it kind of enough surface area, so like um, maybe a half inch thick. Uh, slice and kind of slice either from top to bottom or side to side. Um, but just as long as you have something to grab with your tongs and then just get them right on there and make sure they're pressed kind of down enough and give them just maybe a minute or two on a really, really hot grill and then flip them over and you get nice grill lines. That goes really well with like pork, for mm. example. It kind of adds a little savory smoke to your apples and then you're kind of two thirds of the way there with your garnish you don't have to try too much harder i've tried making the apple onion garnish like in a saute pan mm. before I, I can't quite get the the balance between crispness and mushiness of the apple it always seems a little off i mean do you have any recommendations for like oil versus butter or medium versus high heat it sounds like maybe high heat with the yeah the grill i would say being, i would say yeah. high heat um and probably oil, but it oh, also okay. depends on the type of apple. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have one that's like gonna mush, it's gonna mush. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that's. I feel like it's it's one of those like if you can kind of get it to be part of like a s- sauce, sort of. It's like a little mush is okay. Yeah. Um, hmm, some to think some of flexibility along the way. Yeah. Just like being able to go with it, whichever mm-hmm. way it takes you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then that's kind of a lot of my philosophy with things at the cafe too. It's like, what do we what do we have to work with? What do we get from a farmer? What's feeling good in the season? Like, what can we put together to make something that's like new and different but yummy? And that's why too, even coming up with recipes for this segment, like the soup, it's like oh, I don't really write that down. Mm-hmm. I uh, I should probably write this down as I go. So we had this squash soup in the cafe this week uh, because I made it to you know make sure it was correct and not just the kind of bits that I throw in when I'm doing things in my head. Sure. Uh, let's go back to our phones right now. We've got Barry with us in Cross Plains. Hi, Barry. Hi. I have a question. Uh, many years ago, I during a drought year, I bought Connell red apples, and they were the best apples I had ever tasted. Many years, several years after that, the apples never tasted the same. What is the story there? Hmm. Well, Barry, thanks for the call. Um, the Connell Red, Laurel, is that one that you've had before? That is not one that I've had before, actually. Connell Red. I'm going to ask. Um, I work really closely with Door Creek Orchard right now in um, Cottage, yeah, Cottage Grove. Um, I'm going to have to ask Liz about that. 
Um, but drought year versus um, other years, I mean, would have a ton to do with it. And also just like the when the frost is and um, even for the following year. So the the kind of anecdote I have about that is um, uh, three years ago now, I think two or three years ago, um, Honeycrisp were not a, a thing that blossomed in Wisconsin, really, at least not in our region. And that's because the year before there was a frost in May that damaged the blossoms in such a way that the following year, hmm. so not even that year, but the next year, there were no Honeycrisp apples. And so, so much has to do with it. Like orchard owners and farmers who grow fruit and fruit trees, they, they have all my respect. It's such a touchy fruit and it changes so much from year to year. So I, I maybe the drought year had something to do with it and those being amazing. Um, it's Yeah, it's hard to tell. Yeah, Barry, thanks for the call. And we will keep the Connell Red on our, our radar. Uh, Laurel, I want to get to the other recipe that you shared with us. Um, this sounds really delicious. Apple ginger muffins. Uh, can you tell us how these come together? Yeah, so it's a pretty standard. It's kind of like a cookie um, kind of procedure. You cream the butter and the, the sugar together and um, then kind of add the eggs and vanilla. One thing I really love about this recipe, and this is kind of a, a base recipe that I use for a lot. I can kind of switch out the fruit and the spice to kind of do a lot of different things with it. And because of the applesauce and the rolled oats in it, I think it's really hearty. Like it's not a muffin, it's but it's not dense either. It's not a muffin that's breakfast cake. Mm-hmm. I think some muffins, it's, you know, they might as well be a piece of cake. Like put some frosting on it. You're eating a cupcake. <laughs> um, but this is not like that. It's It's sweet, certainly. There's a lot of sugar in it. But I feel like it's also got some some density to it in such a way that like stays with you for a little bit and you know it's a treat but it's a treat you can feel good about and not you know have a sugar crash 30 minutes later yeah and it has this awesome apple apple streusel topping Mm, which is mm -hmm. really good um i love that kind of like crunchy bit on top of the muffin and also something surprised me it doesn't have cinnamon in it if i'm correct it does not so i kind of took that as a special challenge um, I got a tip that um, Rob, who also hosts this program, um, has a cinnamon allergy. And so I took that as a specific challenge to make apple recipes without cinnamon because that's something that typically goes hand in hand. It's really hard to find an apple thing without cinnamon this time of year. Yeah. And people with a cinnamon allergy must really struggle with that. I, I have a few friends and acquaintances who have that. And uh, shout out Margie. Um, and, uh, I would love to provide something that's still yummy and in that zone and has that same kind of apple spice element to it without the cinnamon, something that they can enjoy too. Yeah. Uh, you can find that recipe at WPR.org slash food Friday. One more thing I want to ask you about, um, you have something on your menu right now, an autumn chicken breakfast sandwich with apple mustard. How do you make yeah. apple mustard? What's that like? Yeah. Well, there's a couple different ways. Uh, the one that's on our menu right now, it's really yummy. It's a like a Jones Dairy Farm chicken sausage uh, and a fried egg. And this apple mustard is apple butter. So basically taking applesauce and cooking it down very, very slowly until it's very rich and kind of the consistency of butter. A lot of people, when I say apple butter, they think like, oh, I can't have dairy. It's like, nope, it's really, it's just cooked down apples. Uh, you just have to be really slow and patient with cooking them down. 
And um, if you try to make it at home, be careful with spice because all of that gets condensed. Um, so that's why I don't do any spice in this one. And then mix it with uh, a couple different types of mustard um, so that it's a little bit tart, a little bit sweet. You get that mustard kind of bite that cuts through the richness of the sausage. And it's a really yummy breakfast sandwich that we have right now. That sounds really delicious. Well, uh, Laurel, that's all the time we've got. But thank you so much for coming up in the studio today and, and sharing all this with us. Yeah, thank you for, so much for having me. We're really quick. We're located downtown in Madison in the lower level of the Dane County Courthouse. Yes, uh, that is the Ugly Apple Cafe. Laurel Burleson is the owner. She's been with us for this week's edition on Food Friday. Uh, we've been talking about apples, all sorts of varieties, and what we can do with them. You can still let us know what you like to do with apples at uh, by emailing ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. And find those recipes at WPR.org slash Food Friday for apple ginger muffins and butternut squash apple soup. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, uh, more people are saying that they're lonely, and that can have all kinds of impacts on our health. Kate and her guests will talk about approaching loneliness as a public health issue and what we can do about it. Plus, the state capitol report will get caught up on a busy week in the state legislature. That's coming up Monday on The Morning Show. You might have seen the news this week about a 1981 DeLorean car with less than a thousand miles on it that's been sitting in a Wisconsin barn for 20 years. Well, the car has a new home. It's heading south of the border to the DeLorean Midwest Company in Illinois. The head of the business said the current owner called him about the vehicle, saying he didn't drive it much, that he preferred to go in the barn and look at it because it's a really cool car. Now, I saw six DeLoreans parked at a gas station in Middleton this summer, and it turns out that was a pretty big piece of the whole pie. The DeLorean company only made cars for about one year before folding, and they weren't really all that popular. Until, of course, Doc Brown and Marty McFly showed off what one could do in Back to the Future. Just pick a date, step on the gas, and travel through time. But before you do, we hope you stay with us here on Central Time. <laughs> 